Welcome back to 90 or Nothing Podcast with hosts Paxton Pulford and Kylie Barnett. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are certainly experiencing a new world with the outbreak of the coronavirus. Now, I'm not going to bang on about it because we've heard plenty about it on the news and social media platforms, but it is worth a mention and I sure hope everyone out there listening to this podcast stays safe and all their loved ones are unaffected by this awful virus. It is very disappointing that all these events are cancelled, but on the upside, we've just got to look forward and hope that it all passes by as quickly as it came and and everyone remains positive as this will pass and we will get through it. It's just a matter of time. So to pass this time as we all are in self-isolation, we may as well listen to a podcast as that is a great activity to do to pass the time. But before we get into this week's interview, I thought it's worth a mention. I was scrolling on Facebook this week as we all regularly do, up on the NCHA Facebook page, a poem popped up. Now this poem was written by a local identity in Scone, Jim McCallum, and it's just fantastic. It's absolutely hilarious. So a big shout out to Jim McCallum. I'll read it here because it's worth a mention, and it's called The Cutting Corona. It was drier than an Arab's thong before we caught on fire, then someone ate a bat, the consequences dire. 2020, the year of foresight, not a, not headaches in a fever. If someone had to try and tell you, you'd be a non-believer. But before you panic, and I can tell you with some surety, that at some point in the 2020, there will be a futurity. But to get there will take effort and a sense of help you, mate, because there are people out there who we can contribute to their fate. Our trainers, now they need a hand to see this through till the end. For that... For those that can, the time is now to find a horse to send. A yearling or a two, get them right on track and keep our trainers going by giving them a crack. Or that clinic that you threatened to organise should now get underway because the time is now, my friend, so book without delay. Or ring up for a lesson. Good nose, Dobbin needs straightening out. You'll be better when the shows are on, for that I have no doubt. Get your trailer serviced, new bearings, wheels aligned, or maybe that new hat that has been playing on your mind. Your shopping spree in June may need to be done with your finger and a mouse to support the NCHA sponsors from the comfort of your house. Get in early, book your breedings, there's still plenty you can do. Keep our affiliates up and running, that's how we'll beat the flu. Or how about a photo to hang up on the wall? Now that you're inside more, give that photographer a call. Are your horses registered? Is your membership up to date? Is your saddlery in order? Or is some just second rate? Should the vet go over Dobbin? Why he's not stopping to the right? Or do the dentist and chiropractor have the tools to stop the fight? So hook in and keep riding. No more sitting in the stand. Because in the blink of an eye, we'll be playing in the sand. Cole will hit the button. Brent will announce the owner. And the horses will be working to the beat of my corona. So if you want to see Futurity Horses, one you'll definitely remember. Lock it in your diary for that first weekend in November. Well, well done, Jim McCallum. I thought that was a fantastic poem. Big shout out to you, mate. And I think that's put a real positive light for the rest of the year, as we know, as it feels like 2020 is almost cancelled. But I'm sure as all this passes, everything will bounce back. And I'm as pumped up as everyone else to get to the Futurity for 2020. Well, moving right along, guys, with this week's episode, I'm excited to announce that this week's interview, I got to sit down with Ian Francis, Australia's absolute legend of the horse industry. He had a major influence on the camp draft, cutting, cow horse, and challenge scene as he brought a new level of competitiveness and professionalism to all of these industries. Guys, I'm super stoked to be able to bring this awesome interview to everyone with one of Australia's greatest horsemen. We hope you enjoy. This episode of the 90 or Nothing podcast show has been proudly brought to you by Camp Draft Training Online. Are you looking to improve yourself in the Camp Draft pen? Well, why not jump on www.teamcto.com.au and find out all the latest tips and hints from Australia's greatest Camp Draft trainers. These guys will make the difference. So remember guys, when sparing and jerking just ain't working, jump on www.teamcto.com.au and subscribe.
Well, we're here today with Ian Francis, legendary horseman. Uh, thanks, Ian, for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we're at Mudgy Showgrounds. We've just had a few days clinic here. Thank you very much for doing that. And yeah, thanks for joining us, Ian. Oh, well, thank you for having me. That's uh, been my pleasure. And, um, you know, let's, let's take us right back from the start. How did you get involved with the horse industry? What was, the, you know, your beginning? Oh, my beginning was uh, not to do with horses at all. My, my family uh, lived on the outskirts of uh, Melbourne, Queensland, and uh, weren't involved in the rural industry at all. But we had, uh, you know, dairy farmers and, and the like around us there. And, and uh, I, was, I was really, really interested in horses and, and cattle and stuff ever since I can remember. So I used to go make myself useful to those people and, and uh, in the hope that I'd get to ride some horses and so forth, which periodically I did. And um, I always uh, and I always felt like I wasn't going to have um, a, a wealthy kind of op- occupation. I never thought I was particularly bright, and uh, I kind of thought that if I made myself real useful to people and learned a lot of skills, that I'd always have a job. Yeah. And um, so that's how I kind of started was uh, bumming rides on other people's horses and uh, and went and grew from there till I went into originally I started working the railways I was meant to be a station master which uh, horrified me yeah and uh, the mentality of the place scared me to death or disappointed me you know disinterested in 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 the union mentality of the joint and uh, eventually I I quit that and just went bush and um, cut sugarcane and fencing and and uh, you know some working with some horses I I took up with a family not too far from where I lived when I was about 12 years old and I spent all my spare time with them and they had um, they had bullet teams and they had uh, rodeo team of rodeo bronx and rodeo bulls and yeah. they uh, bought a lot of, of um, horses that people couldn't handle and we used to get to ride those and try and civilise them and sell them and some of them we saw two or three times they'd sell them <laughs> and they'd go to buck someone off and they'd bring them back and we'd ride them some more and yeah, and got to ride a lot, lot of pretty a- average horses. They got rode a few ones in that period, and, and eventually I went into the into the um, rural sector and went into uh, managing cattle properties, which I thought was probably my future. There wasn't really an occupation as a horse trainer at that time. And I'm, I'm talking about the '60s. Right now. So how old were you there? <laughs> uh, well, I was born in 45. So, you know, so yeah, I, I was fairly young. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. I became a property. A cattle property manager at 23, which is pretty young, right? And um, and I kind of thought that's where I was going to finish up, and but I always felt uh, a little uh, dissatisfied somehow that something wasn't really enough, and, uh, and then the beef depression came along in the 70s, early in the about 74, right? And there was just nothing happening in, in the rural sector in, as far as the beef cattle industry was concerned, and I had some people that I'd uh, managed some properties for. Uh, called Kingston Rural Management, and they uh, they started a quarter horse stud called Kalora Quarter Horses. Oh, okay. And they asked me if I'd come down and, and manage it and run that uh, whilst the beef depression was on. So I did that on a two-year contract and uh, started showing uh, quarter horses in um, in quarter horse events and, and so forth. And so that's kind of how I, I kind of accidentally came into the horse industry. And... Uh, and I got to be successful with that. I, I mean, I'd been riding horses in some, in some shows prior to that, in agricultural shows and the like, and in camp drafts yeah. and the like. But um, I, I got to um, spe- sort of concentrate on AQHA events through that period yeah. and got quite a lot of success. And when I went back to the, <clears throat> when the beef industry straightened itself out and I went home, I just get, kept getting inundated with inquiries to take horses yeah. So um, John Kingston from Kingston Rural Management uh, went to the trouble of convincing me that the property I was involved in wasn't going to be viable in the long term. And, and he pointed out to me that the horse industry in Australia was a $4,000 million industry run by amateurs. And, um, and he said that the, uh, he told me the horse industry after the beef depression was going to change. We no longer had, um, the, well, we did the volume of work, but used to be you would ride a horse out 30 miles or something to, 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 
muster a back paddock. He had a lot of miles for those horses and you rode them all day. Well, in, the, in, the, in that period, coming into the 70s, you know, transport got a lot better and, um, and so forth. It got to be where you would put horses on trucks and take them out. And also, in the Beef Depression, the industry lost a lot of, a lot of its ringers, yep. a lot of its horsemen, and they weren't coming back. And he pointed out to me that in the future, the uh, station owner's uh, family would be their, their, their mustering teams, and he would, they wouldn't want them riding rank old horses that, uh, you know, had been out for the spell for the season and come in more hawky and bronchy. Yep. And also, the, the insurance companies were going to make it tough with premiums for accidents. <laughs> So when you used to go down to the stockyard and watch the stockman get backed off for fun, it just wasn't going to happen much anymore because, yeah. you know, uh, work, and then work, you're going to have things eventually. We had workplace health and safety and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This was all, all evolving and it, would, it brought change to, to the industry. So he pointed out to me that, that the average person, working man, has five years, months of the year free time and a disposable income and that the... the the leisure industry was going to become the biggest industry in Australia, and horses were going to become part of the leisure industry, not part of the working industry. Right. And he was the only bloke that ever that foresaw this. Yeah. In my in my experience, but he pointed this all out to me in the seventies, and he he said that um, this industry needs a professional attitude, and he said I think you're the right bloke for it. Much to my surprise, because I'm like me, I thought I was about the least least professional person around. Right. But. Um, he, he, uh, and he was pointing out things like uh, the people in the, in the future that owns a lot of the better horses are going to be businessmen and, and, and professional people. And professional people deal with, with, with professionals. A man that owns a, a Mercedes Benz doesn't go to a backyard mechanic. He goes to a professional. Yeah. So um, this was uh, the mix that, that um, you know, evolved into the business that I, that I built. Yeah. yeah. So growing up, who were some of the mentors that you had? Who were you learning off when you were younger? Well, really early on, I went to this. Uh, I was with the Whittier family at Meribah, and the eldest of those, all those boys could ride pretty good. Right. You know, they, uh, they weren't, uh, you know, show riders of, yep. any, of any sort, but they were pretty pretty capable of, of doing a job. Yeah. And uh, the eldest bloke, Barry, was pretty uh, pretty finessful about getting cults started. And he was the first fellow I had struck. To put what I would think is a signature on a horse, if you if you got on a horse he started five years after or more after he started, and other people have been riding it, you could still kind of tell he'd had to do with it. Yeah. And um, so he, he put what I would call his a signature on a horse, and he could put a very good feel on a horse, and it was something that I kind of aspired to. Um, so he was one of the first guys I, 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 I took uh, some notice of. And then the the, the fellow, there's two other fellows, um, a fellow called Lee Rebors, who was yeah. uh, a, an American. Yeah. Okay. He was rain, rode rain cow horses and rainers in the United States, and was was a regular gentleman and a great fellow. And he taught us uh, quite a bit of the of the handling skills that I, I use. Yeah. And then Johnny Stanton, who's yeah a bit of a legend, is not a bit. He is a legend in the camp duff industry here. He. Um, not so much about about horsemanship per se, but he gave me an awfully awful lot of good advice. Yeah, and he an awful lot of, of, of timely advice. Right, and that uh, that helped me and along. And they were the main, as far as the horses were concerned. Yeah, they were probably there have been other people, of course, as yeah. other people that were possibly worthy of mention, but but they were probably the most. Um, most significant. Right. Yeah. And what sort of drew you down to the sort of quarter horse, cow horse industry? Oh, economics, simple as that. Right. Back then, um, they were the only people that would pay you to go down the road. Yeah, right. You know, back when I started out, the stock horse industry, <laughs> they would send you a horse to break in and you might, they drop it off at your house and and uh, then you might say, well, it's going and they would say, just turn out in the paddock. and. And then they might uh, say, oh, look, Mick Murphy's coming to the camp draft at so-and-so. Can you bring him up there and drop him off? And then they'd forget to have their checkbook there. Yeah. And you might, if you're lucky, get paid for it in 12 months' time. Yeah, yeah. And if you charge them for carting it there, they'd have a pink fit because they'd never paid for anything in their life. <laughs> well, it was only... So they weren't, they weren't going to pay you to go down the road. Yeah. That was totally foreign to their, their, their thought process. 
and um, it was only the, the quarter horse people and the Appaloosa and the paints and the, those kind of people who, who were business people so they understood a bit more the concept of paying for your time and paying for your costs and, and paying to go down the road and they, so uh, really I started out riding stock horses early on but um, the, the, the fact that the, fir the first big job I was given was by quarter horse people yeah. and, and also when I started my own training stables in 19, well I probably started training for myself at about uh, 76 I guess yeah. and um, it was it was mostly the, the quarter horse people and and the paint and Appaloosa people and so forth that uh, were would pay you to, to take a horse and show it and, yeah. and, and kind of understood that you need to be paid for your time and yeah. and uh, the, like with the stock horse people if they said we'll just turn him out they didn't have any concept of the thought that you might be able to run four or five cows with their horses running mm. but they expected it to be done for free yeah and um and you can't kind of run a business like that no not at all so then you're known in the in the horse industry to be a very versatile horseman having one reining and cows and cutting camp drafts you know we don't see a lot of people that uh, that versatile these days a lot of people are specialized what what sort of you know, what did it take to get to that point, did you feel? Oh, it, it was, I thought it was a necessity originally. When I, when I came out of the bush, uh, you know, to call yourself a professional in those days in the horse industry, you, you just about get shot to pieces, sort of deal, you know, or ridiculed, sort, yeah. sort of. And, um, but I, I kind of thought if I was going to take money off people as a professional, I really need to have a, a broad spectrum of knowledge. And I thought if I was going to succeed, I couldn't see one industry providing me with enough horses to, to pay a mortgage and feed kids and what you need to do. So um, I, start, I started out trying to learn as much as I could about every event, partly because I thought if, if a dressage person sent me horses to start, then I need to have some perception of what they, they needed. If a polo cross player sent me a horse to start, then I, if I had some concept of what, what he required, then I could put some of that into that horse. And, and with all kinds, so I, I tried to make a make myself familiar with all of the events mm. and riding all the events. And uh, people don't know this too much, but I would go to agricultural shows and put hack gear on and ride a hack in the morning. Yeah, and then right. I judged the rodeo in the afternoon, but I should make sure I was out of that other gear before <laughs> before the cowboys turned up. You know, and uh, but it, it gave me an insight into. What those people required. Yeah. But then I, but see, then obliquely, what I found was, I could, I found or things that training techniques that one event used that you could use in another event to enhance what you're doing. So, and I, and I started to learn along the way that a lot, as much as we all thought we were a, a different than the dressage people, really, when it come, when it came right down to it, we were using very much the same cues and very much the same techniques and so forth we just called it different things yeah and we had a little bit different like slightly different slant on it but yeah a lot of it goes back to um you know i i, I kind of think that um dressage is the esperanto of the horse world it's a universal language yeah and but we do we do change a, a little depending on the event we, we we're uh, gearing towards absolutely so what about talk to us a little bit about i'd say you're a bit of a you know, some would say a pioneer in bringing into the into our traditional stock horses. You know, our pine previously we were known to sitting on our pockets and riding with our feet out near the shoulders. Talk to us a little bit about how you know we've evolved from that and what you brought to it. You feel? Oh, um, that that I think we came from in, in riding English riding, and I, I I think that our grandfathers and great grandfathers come out here and and to ride a lot of miles and so forth. They get sore in the back and then they get uh, to where they want to sit down and get more comfortable and and so forth. And uh, and we, we just got leg lazy. And in fact, then when we were taught to ride, no one talked about using your leg aids or legs or feet. I talked about my feet more so. Yeah. Um, I got a chip recently by a dressage fellow saying, you always talk about your feet, not your legs. Well, I think of it as my feet. Yeah. You know? um, I want to put use my feet to put a horse's feet somewhere. That's how I think, and I use my lower legs somewhat more. So I think, of, I think of it as my feet, 
uh, I just got to thinking that uh, there was a, there was more, some capacity to use my legs. Yeah. And then I got to thinking that um, the more I could use my legs, the less I might have to use my hands. Yeah. So then I started to experiment with it, and um, and just see how much I could do with my feet and how little I could do with my hands. It was just uh, just a curiosity for me. And um, and what I found eventually was I developed a whole bunch of cues that dressage people have been using thousands of years ago, but I never got that lesson. Right. You know. Yeah. It turned out that if it's going to work, you know, it's going to be very similar to what someone else has been doing anyhow. Yeah. And. Um, so uh, a lot of the stuff I learned, I learned away in the bush by myself. I, I used to take one-man properties and manage those, and, and uh, so I got, I was able to ride a little bit, you know, mm. cheat a little bit for time. Right. If I was going to check windmills, I'd do it on a horse. If I was going to check a carving cows, I'd go do it on a horse. And um, and I'd, I'd experiment with all this stuff as I went along. Yeah. You know, how can I move a horse to a certain point? How can I move certain parts of my horse with my feet? And um, and uh, so I, I became fairly adept at, u- at using my feet. Yeah. And um, and then uh, lo and behold, uh, the industry came that way a little bit mm. and started to um, to come back to what we call an equitation seat, where you got your feet down the horse's rib cage and you use you know your legs or your feet in order to communicate a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about you know how you go about training a horse I know like there's a lot of methods and you know a thousand ways to do it but I feel like a lot of people have previously gone you know and continue to use fear as a way of training just talk to us a little bit how you build confidence into them well yeah I try to make every every training session um, you know uh, um, educational for them like a learning experience for them and a confidence building experience for them, you know. So, um, and I tried to I, I tried to get them to to, uh, to engage their mind, and more so than than just to react. Yeah. So if I get I figure out if I can get a horse to understand what my cue is relates to, and how and how, what to do in relation to that cue, then they become more confident. But I mean, you can you can be very successful just by pulling and kicking. Yeah. And you will get beat every other day at, at some kind of contest by someone that pretty much does that. Mm. Uh, but um, I, I feel like if I can, uh, if I can get my horses really confident and really composed and really un- understanding what it is I'm asking of them, and then indeed if I can get them to where if they, if they get unsure of themselves or get in, into a, a spot where they, they don't know that they'll look back to me for some help, more so than look back for, for punishment or fear. Yeah. Now I wasn't always this way. I I, I can knock on as hard as anyone when I was young. Right. You know, but I, I got I, I got bruised up some doing that too. Yeah. And I bruised up a, fair, a few horses early on. I bruised myself up early on, and uh, you know it didn't. I, I, it took me a little while to evolve to think about about this this stuff more clearly. So, what p- point in your of your career did you feel like you were starting to make things roll and things were starting to happen for you? Uh in the in the eighties, yeah, you know, I started to I, I, my, I set out originally. I was riding an awful lot of working stock horse classes, agricultural shows, anything, any contest at all within shooting distance of home. Right. And then in those those days, we still had a lot of versatile horsemen and a lot of versatile horses, but. You know, we, we tend a little bit, certainly in, in the Western horse industry, if Americans jump off a cliff, we jump off a cliff kind of deal. Right. Whatever they were doing, we seemed like we followed on 15 or 10 years later. And, uh, you know, good or bad, it yeah. seemed like we, we did that. Well, they were going becoming more and more specialised, whereas uh, people like ourselves would take horses down the road and we might ride in five or six events. Yeah. They would take a horse for one event, specialised horse. Right. And, uh, and, and that eventually fragmented the industry. But um, when I first went to the AQHA Nationals, there were an awful, awful lot of horsemen that rode in, in, in events. There might have been 35 or so professional trainers, and most of them kind of tough to, to beat. Yeah. And they were versatile people. And uh, they could ride pretty much any kind of horse or train for pretty much any kind of an event. Now, as, as, as it went along, we got more and more specialised judges coming out from America and, and people tended to, to, to follow it and become more specialised. 
So where we had really versatile horses through the 70s and 80s and, and a few still into the early 90s, from that time on, things be fragmented. Uh, the cutting went its own way, the reining went its own way, the pleasure horses went its own way. The whole, we used to show our ridden horses as holder horses. Right. And we used to judge them as ridden horses. We would look at them and try to see what would it, what would inhibit them when we went to ride and what would cause me trouble, what would, what would become unsound. And, and now I'm not too sure what constitutes a hold horse because they they're horrified if they think you're going to ride them. Yeah. So I don't know what happens if they've got crooked legs or something. You might be selling them on the meat market. I don't know what the hell you do with them. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, it kind of fragmented. And in, in the 80s and, and so forth, I, uh, where I was fortunate, was you could get to a lot of events. They wouldn't put events on to clash with other major events. Mm. So I could go to the Rain Cow, Rain Cow Horse Futurity and the next morning I could leave for Klein Covey and ride in the Stockman's Challenge. Yeah. Or I could get back for the rain for the Cunning Derby. Yeah. And, and they, they were, they, there were a few people, you know, that weren't specialising that were riding in all of these things. So they wanted those people at the event so they wouldn't clash. Yeah. Now they don't care. Yeah, okay. You know, and, and uh, I, you know, I have a, a fairly extensive record, I, I, I think it's vain to say that, but it's going to be awful hard for someone to duplicate that because events clash now yeah. and it's harder to get to everything, you know. Yeah. Growing up, was there a significant event that you felt like if you could win that, you sort of, you know, that would be, mean a lot to you? Uh, yeah, yeah, there, were, there was, um, but it, that goes back a bit further. To when I was young, I was very introverted and very shy. And um, and I didn't have too much uh, self-esteem. Yeah. And uh, I got some. I, I got to meet some people who lived next door to me when I was managing Claude Court horses that were into motivation and into goal seeking, and they got me in, got me interested in that and interested in the concept of, of positive thinking and, and 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 goal seeking and and excluding the things that you didn't want to achieve and and focusing on the things you wanted to achieve. And uh, so I started doing that, started seeing short-term goals and longer-term goals and stuff like that. And um, so the, the first major thing I set out to win was uh, the Lee Rebors Memorial Trophy Buckle, because Lee was yeah. like, what people now call you a mentor. Yeah. And, um, and he had passed away. Right. And it's, it's only a little thing about well, four inches long, it's only kind of tiny. But it, it, it's one of the most significant buckles I have. and. Um, so, and I managed, it was end of year, high point, reigning horse trainer for the year. Yeah. And uh, so that was the first thing I really set my eyes on and said, I'm, I'm really going to try and attempt to achieve that. And then the next thing I, I set out to achieve was, because rain cow horse was very big in, Lee was a rain cow horse man. Right. And it's something that I really aspired to do and, and enjoyed. Right. So I set my sights on, on the Australian rain cow horse for journey. Yeah. Well, I think I was seven times to a chip reserve champion. Wow. And I thought I was the eternal bridesmaid. I didn't <laughs> think I was ever going to win the thing. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually I did, and then I managed to win it four times in a row. Right. And then I started to believe a bit more in the concept that if you, if your mind perceives something for you, you are capable of achieving. Yeah. You know, that your mind won't uh, set something for you that it not, you're not capable of achieving. So, uh, so then, then uh, the reigning became, rain cow horse waned and, and reigning became the fastest growing sport yep. in the Western world, F1 world. And uh, so I set my sights on, on the reigning futurity. Right. And uh, I think uh, the second year after the NRHA started, I, I, th I think I, I won the reigning futurity and won it five times. And then, uh, then it seemed like cutting seemed to be. Yeah. Uh, I went to the, the cutting futurity and uh, I was given a mare to train for for uh, reining, but she had a crooked front leg and she kind of travelled a bit rough, and I figured she was never going to be a reiner, and I put her on a cow and she was phenomenal on the cow. Yeah. So I set my sights on the cutting futurity. Right. And uh, and uh, took her to she was the first uh, horse I took to the NCHA futurity. And uh, and she won the Futurity in '91. Yeah. And annoyed a hell of a lot of people. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I bet. Because they kind of said, "Well, a do everything kind of fella doesn't win the cutting Futurity." Yeah. And uh, and then they said, um, 
Well, yeah, he did, but he just had a great horse, so he was lucky. Right. So I felt obliged to go back and do it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so yes, um, very. I, I nowadays because I, and there's other goals like uh, goal to get a million dollars in assets, goal to uh, own certain properties. Yeah. The, the, and um, and those I've achieved most of those. Um, and now I feel like if I haven't got got a specific goal in front of me, I get kind of lost. Yeah. I, get, I start feeling a little anxious, actually. Really? Oh, yeah, because I've been doing it so long. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So out of um, the camp drafting, raining, the cow horse and the cutting, what was your favourite event? Oh, the cattle events. Yeah. Um, yeah. The cattle events, I'm happy with any of them. But I, I kind of think that the, uh, the, rain, the rain cow horse or the stockman's challenges are the, are the toughest event to train for because you're training for three events. Yeah. And um, whereas the other are singular events, and and uh, to get a horse really nice in three events and maintaining in three events is an awfully big test. Right. But the, the the problem with it is when you're training for the public as a professional, you're gonna put an awful lot of time in, into a rain cow horse or a stockman's challenge horse. Yeah. Now they're not gonna pay you more money to train it. That horse and that are going to pay you to train a, a rain or a cutter. Yeah. And uh, so you get to ride less of them, so it's not as viable a business yeah. that way. But um, yeah, the, the, the three event discipline, I think, is, is, is a big challenge. Yeah, of course. <coughs> so, Ian, talk to us a little bit about some of the great horses you've had throughout your lifetime. Um, and a, a horse that no one hears about anymore is a horse called King's Gold. And he was the very first genuine quarter horse that I had. Um, the people at Kalora quarter horses, after I'd managed cattle properties for me, they started. They started Kalora be, uh, a couple of years before I went to work for them, and they they uh, asked me if I'd take a gelding, and uh, if I would start him, and if he was any good, promote him. If he wasn't any good, bury him, and I could buy him for a, a, a nominal fee if I if I wanted him. And uh, so they gave me a second cross quarter horse gelding by, by a horse called Hill King Bars. Right. And um, he was just uh, uh, the most forgiving horse. And uh, so I tried every every technique in the world on him. Yeah. And, um, and Chilasini, uh, who's a legend in the, in the cutting horse industry in Australia, yeah. so, and could be very caustic in his opinions, someone asked him one day what he thought of myself and that horse. And he said, Ian's made him five times, four times and messed him up five. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of how it went. You know, I would try everything on him and I'd kind of half wreck him and I'd put him back together again. And I won an awful lot of stuff on him up through the, you know, uh, stock horse. He was, he was also dual registered as a stock horse. Oh, okay. I won an awful lot of those events and, and I could do cow horse on him. I could ride him without a bridle and do bridleless trails and... And, uh, and you could ride him in, as a dressage class or a hat class or whatever. So he was an exceptional horse. Yeah. Um, but nobody much would know of him to he's dead now, of course. Yeah. Um, then uh, when I, in, the, in the reigning industry, the early significant horses were, were Anaro Rock and Return. Right. He won the fertility, I think, in 91. And Hug Me Doc was reserve in 91. Yeah, but uh, they they were two really nice raining raining horses, um, in, in the cutting and uh, rain cow horse events. I ha I had a mare called Doc at um, Murrumbo Fiona. Yeah, won an awful lot of cow horse for me. Uh, B S Mingo's Lucero won a lot of cow horse for me. Um, and went on to the uh, the covers. Uh, we had Spindle early on, then uh, one hell of a spin. And then uh, Gigi Coles and um, One Room Pepto. Yeah. I have some others in there that <laughs> were pretty damn good. Yeah. But I messed messed up showing them. Yeah. Okay. Lost cattle, but they were they were some of the real significant ones. What What was their X factor? Why <coughs> were they so good? Do you oh, think? Well, they had awful, awful lot of depth of genetics. You know, you got to take uh, one say one hell of a spin. She was out of a Derby champion. Who was out of out of Futurity champion. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, um, a lot, of, uh, awful lot of good genetics there. Yeah. And 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 you know, Raylene Higgins owns, and she's by no, she's nobody's fool when it comes down to um, you, you know knowing which of the horses are more likely to produce. Mm. You know, and um, 
if you would take uh, one more spin, who was the other mayor that, you know, won, won a heap of money, she was out of a, she was all, they were both out of Rockalina mayors. Yeah. One hell spin and rock, and uh, one more spin, and then and then she in turn was out of a Mr. Moore eight mayor. Mm. And then, and uh, that, there's, a, there's a lot of really good genetics back there. Right. And then also too, I think they had people who genuinely cared about them, as, in, same as myself with uh, that mayor. One hell of a was born on my place. Oh, really? And, um, and uh, you know, I, I had a little mm-hmm. bit of an affinity with her and an interest in, in her success. Yeah. M- more so than just the general run of horses. Yeah. And then, of course, one more, one more has been had Todd Grant. Yeah. And uh, she was part of their family dynasty. And mm. so they, they had um, people that really did have their, maybe might have their interest at heart, maybe just a little bit more than yeah. some others would probably put, maybe put a little more into them. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, they they were just outstanding individuals. One Rome Pepto is an outstanding individual, you know, and one uh, great work integrity, and uh, would go to work. It wouldn't, wouldn't matter if he one of his legs would fall off. He would. Yeah. And the great ones are like that, you know. Right. Um, they they'll go to work and they'll forget about that kind of stuff when they're called on, you know. Yeah. Mm. So how would you say over the last? 30, 40 years, how has the cow horse, like a general cow horse shape changed? Um, how have they evolved? Well, they uh, a lot of horses overseas have got smaller yeah. and got lighter bone and, and smaller footed. And that, I think it's somewhat to do with um, with uh, being confined. And also to um, a lot less horsemen around today, a lot more uh, business people that, that don't necessarily look at horses structure a whole lot and probably don't know a lot about structure and buy simply on on horses records of achievement yeah and uh, so i see uh, uh, quite quite a lot happening with that and then we, we're seeing uh, so much um lot inbreeding or line breeding whichever you want to call it yeah and um, we're seeing quite a few um uh, you know defects you know mm-hmm. genetic defects turning up mm-hmm. as a result of that yeah and um, so I guess they're the major things I see, I see happening, you know, in, in the reigning industry. Well, I suppose there's a lot more too. There's a lot more cosmetics being, and, and being used, not was cosmetics is the right word, but um, uh, there's a lot more hocks being injected, a lot more stifles being injected yep. and, uh, than there were in the past. You know? yep. So I don't know whether we're getting our horses more and more refined. Right. We're getting away from the, the old ranch horses that was, were tough because of the environment they were reared and bred in. Yeah. I, I guess it has some, some to do with that. It's come down. Yeah. So you think we're sort of almost bred a more performance sort of based? Oh, you sure have. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. sure have, yes. Definitely. Yeah. I went to a barn in the United States, I think it was about 92 or three, and they had something like 95 horses in, in the stables and there were colts everywhere. And the colts with, with awful legs and all sorts of stuff. Right. And I said to the the, the guy that ran the barn, the trainer, how come you keeping those these fellows as colts? They got awful leg conformation. He said because the owners feel like if they go out and win something significant, they're going to get breeding to them. Right. Because people don't come look at them; they just look at their um, performance performance record. Yeah. Yep. So on that, you went to this. I imagine you've been to the states a few times. Yeah. What was the sort of things? You, what was the time? What did you do while you spent over there? Oh, Were you working, training? Uh, again, I mean, I, m- one of my problems is is, is I, I am a, a bit shy and I am not very outgoing. And uh, so I, I used to just go over and I would sit and rather than go and introduce myself to some of those people who I didn't think would be interested in me anyhow, I would go and mm-hmm. sit at the, at the uh, pre-works and watch the pre-works and try and, and I feel like I, I can learn quite a lot by watching what does work and what doesn't work. Yeah. What, and... Uh, so in the early times I went over there, mostly that's what I did. did I would just go, go to some of, one of the big, bigger shows and, and spend time watching the practice pen and watching how they showed the horses. And it seemed like I always come back with something to work on. Yeah. And uh, if I had my time over, I, I guess I'd be a bit more outgoing and, and uh, go introduce myself to some people and maybe spend more time on them. But and that's it, not, what, not what happened. Well, yeah. And, and who over there was... Like, who were you watching over there in particular? Oh, well, people, Al, Al Dunning way back then was, was the man. He, oh, yeah. He wrote, written a book on uh, on reining and he was writing a horse called Expensive Hobby and 
and uh, Bobby Ingersoll. Yeah. They, they were, they were the, the, the uh, they were the men. Yeah. Those Matlock Rose and Don Dodge were still around the live back yeah. then, but there was Bobby Avila. Yeah. Who was very popular. Um, yeah. It was Boy Summers that was coming. One of the young men coming through. Uh, John Slack and Todd Bergen. Yeah. Were just young, very young men then, but yeah. starting to come through. So. Right. They were all those kind of people. Um, in, in later years, people like like Boydie Rice and and um, Lloyd Cox and yeah, some of those people I, I I would pay attention to. Yeah, so like nowadays, information's very accessible, like your DVDs, clinics, and everything. But it seemed like back in the day, you know, few things were kept to themselves to make, uh, you know, make sure they were on top. Did you find that at all, or? Um, I, I guess it was. You know, back when I was a kid. Yeah. If you ask someone uh, how they did something, uh, they would say, well, it took me 30 years to learn. You it'll t- you take 30 years. Yeah. But I really think it wasn't that they were that ignorant. I think a lot of them just didn't have, weren't articulate enough to explain. And they really hadn't analyzed what they all made it work. Yeah. And I think that came from the era when they said you would only ever have one great horse in your lifetime because they found one that got along with them. Yeah, you right. know, maybe. And, uh, but uh, when Leroy Voss come out here, um, he had a very giving attitude, and his thought on it was, if if uh, if I show you um, everything I know, and you come along in a month or two's time and you beat me, you're going to do it anyhow, because that you had that learning attitude and you'd have gone and got the information somewhere. Mm. So it's far better for you to say when you got the trophy, well, I appreciate Leroy Voss teaching me that. Yeah. And then than trying to uh, hold someone back, you know? And uh, so I've always adopted that. I never I never felt fearful about uh, telling people ha- how I thought things worked. It just never occurred to me to be that way about it. Yeah. And uh, I think more people are like that now. I, yeah. Although I did hear one young man come back from the States not a while back and he, uh, he uh, had been to one of the big money trainers or something. Said, "What did you learn there?" He said, "Well, I'm not going to expense to going over there and telling you what I learned." Yeah, so right. I thought, well, that's kind of selfish, but um, that's his right, of course. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, so, what was was there ever a moment in your life or one bit of information that you've gained that you thought, you know, looking back now, that would have been really good to know early on in the piece. Uh, <laughs> Oh, um, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, look, it's just it, it, there's a couple of them, but the, the, sim- the simple one for me probably is you, that you cannot keep everybody happy enough. You fool if you try. I tried for a long time. Yeah, and it, it sort of burnt me up yep. a fair bit, and um, you know, so so uh, I, I learned somewhere along the line to agree to disagree mm. with on some stuff and. Um, that I could have adopted that somewhat earlier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I saved myself a good bit of angst. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you had a, a fair involvement um, with a another young. Well, he's probably a bit older now, but Clinton Anderson was a train a trainer in the states now, but uh, formerly Aussie man. And you had a fair influence in your life. Talk to us a little bit about him, how you developed him a little bit, and had a bit of an influence on him. Yeah, he credits me with that quite a bit, and uh, but uh, he was working for Gordon McKinley. Yeah. And he was a skinny kid, and he um, he, he and he uh, would talk the leg off an iron pot. He just would not shut up. <laughs> and uh, he would he would ring me periodically and ask me for a job. Yeah. And um, and I I come to see him around with Gordon and Enid at shows, and uh, and I saw Ian Enid. Gordon's wife give me give him a proper chew on one day over something and it seemed like it phased him a whole lot. He didn't get upset about it and didn't, didn't get um, offensive about it. And the, uh, eventually he, uh, after he rung me, I don't know how many times, I finally said, well, I must have had a, a fair few horses to ride at the time. And I said, well, we'll, we'll ride him, you can come on down. So so he came down and um, went to start in Colts for me and, and shoeing Colts for me and stuff. and. As with a lot of the people that came to my house, um, I was trying to ride a lot of times 18, most of the time 18 horses every day because that's what my accountant told me I had to ride to make a profit. So um, so I was kind of busy and I'd say yeah. to them, now look, if you can learn by 
being around and watching and asking, that's fine. Yeah. But I, I'm not going to have time to stand around chewing the fat with you, so you're going to have to sink or swim. That's kind of how it is. Yeah. And and the, and the guys that have come to my place and be, gone on and been successful were the fellows that um, that uh, would get there early and, and do more than they needed to do mm. and finish late and um, and keep their eyes open and be observant. Yeah. And there's been quite a few of them uh, over the years that have gone on and been, been successful, Clinton probably being financially at least the most successful. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really spend a whole lot of time teaching him. He just asked a million questions. Right. Until, you know, he said to me one day, you used to say to me, kid, don't you ever shut up? And he said that I made an awful lot of money out of talking. Yeah. You know, so he, um, he took a lot of the techniques on board that I was using and, and so forth and so on. And then he went off to the United States and he was going to be a horse trainer in the United States because he thought, that, right, rightly so, that that's where the biggest industry is. Yeah. And he knew he wasn't going to get, make, it was going to be hard to, um, to make it here because there were, there were enough of us guys that, that, that were at the top at the time that were getting the bulk of the better horses. Right. And unless you had a family that could buy some good horses to put under you, it was hard to be competitive. So he went over there and um, he, um, but what he found over there was the Americans weren't going to give many of the Aussies a go, particularly in the reining industry. They, they uh, would use you, and they used to have a saying over there, Mexicans and Australians are the way to go because they work. Yeah. You know? And uh, if you've got a nice horse under you, well, pretty soon they take it and shot themselves. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know Clinton was at one barn there early on, and, and he talked the people into uh, letting him show a horse he was working, and they went to the head trainer and they said, we'd like Clinton to show our horse. And the trainer said, hell, if it's going that good, you better bring it over to my side of the barn. Yeah, so he figured he was never going to get much of an opportunity to advance his career over there. So he started teaching. And then he found this, this great kid of uh, baby boomer people over there that had weaned their kids and had disposable incomes and were wanting to learn to ride. And he was developing into, into, you know, a reasonably handsome young man at the time and he had an Australian accent. So he got to be very popular. Yeah. And... Um, and he started out by uh, advertising a clinic, and if five people would turn up, he'd go. Right. He, and he made some DVDs, and he stuck them under in a box and put them under his arm, and he would go. And five people became eight, and eight people become ten. And they did things like they would ring up the Houston Livestock Show and say, uh, Clinton Anderson would be happy to, to do some colt starting, uh, colt or trailer loading demonstrations for free. Right. At the Houston Livestock Show. Yeah. Then they would advertise in the paper, Clinton Anderson, by, pop by popular demand, appearing at the Houston Life <laughs> So he got to uh, expose what he was doing to um, a lot of people. Then he, as he got some money together, the smartest thing he did, he bought a TV camera and he hired a TV crew and he made 22 half-hour training segments and he gave it to RFD-TV if they would air it in prime time once a week. Hmm. So they would, on Tuesday nights at 7.30, we'd have this wonderful down under, Clinton Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so people would sit and eat their TV dinners and watch this, this, this boy with the Australian accent. So he got exposed to 20 million people every Tuesday night. Wow. So, so he has been brilliant at packaging the stuff he learned from Gordon and myself, and he's been brilliant in the way he's uh, promoted his, his name yeah. in the industry. Yeah. Not everybody loves him by any means, hmm. but he, he also understands the concept that if there's, if there's 350 million people in America, 348 million can hate your guts and 2 million can make you rich. Yeah. So he's he has a very good grasp of of, of uh, the business aspects. He, he could teach an awful lot of us a lot about the business aspects hmm. of, of the horse industry. Yeah, so coming back to yourself, did you ever have that draw to be in the States and be a trainer there? Not so very much because um, I guess partly I, I always think that landing um, got two arms and two legs the same as us, yeah. you know. So um, I, I, not, I don't feel intimidated by yeah. them. But I, I never thought I would reach a position of prominence in, in Australia if I was anywhere else. Yeah. So I, I'm pretty satisfied with... Um, with what I've achieved here, yeah, um, you, you, rarely ever have I thought, "What if?" 
Yeah. You know, I never really have because I, I seem to think I had enough uh, significant goals here to try and achieve. And if I got those achieved in my lifetime, that would be a fairly big effort. Yeah. So that's kind of how I thought. So when did you finish up your training sort of now? Now you just, you do clinics and things, mm-hmm. but yeah. when did you finish training up horses? Um, in 2010, um, I, I uh, go back from there. The, the, I think I, I, I picked the right time to do, to change direction as I've gone along, whether that's by good fortune or, or, or some kind of smarts, I'm not sure, but um, you know, when I stopped riding in the AQHA when the, AQHA became a very big non-pro industry. Yeah. And uh, so I, I kind of moved on to reining and uh, and uh, and rein cow horse more specifically. And then uh, when reining, when rein cow horse uh, uh, lost its momentum, and I, I went to reining at cutters. Yeah. And I could, I, I, I could, and 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 the stockman's challenge horses. And then um, eventually I dropped um, after. I, I won five fraternities and got inducted into the Hall of Fame and stuff like that. I knew I couldn't keep going and doing sort of three events plus plus clinics plus uh, develop some cattle country yeah. and stay competitive with everything. Yeah. So I, I, I let the reining go and concentrate on, on the cutters and I still had an odd stop and challenge horse and I started doing more clinics. Mm. and. Um, and uh, then in, in 2000, about 2010, 2009, uh, a, a girl who used to work for me died of pancreas cancer. And I went to her funeral and I got thinking about how, how fickle life was and, um, you know, uh, whether there was anything I had left undone that I hadn't achieved. Right. And there was some, some, some unfinished business with me in the cattle business that I wanted to achieve. Yeah. And I kind of got to thinking, well, if I'm, if I haven't left myself a whole lot of time. Yeah. So uh, if I'm going to achieve this, I better, better get on with it. Yeah. Well, at the same time, I was offered the opportunity to headline um, uh, Equitana Australia Pacific, right. along with Stephen Peters, the American dressage rider. Yes. And yeah. um, no Australian had been offered the opportunity to do that before. Yeah. And uh, I didn't think too much about it at the time. They rang me and said, would you like to do it? And I said, yeah, sure. And then Guy McLean rang me from the States. He said, uh, I'm just ringing to congratulate you on being the first Australian headline Equitana. And I thought, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I better not make a mess of this or I'll never, never invite an Australian ever again. So I, <laughs> so I started putting some thought into that. And, yep. and, uh, and as a result of that, uh, the inquiry for uh, clinics boomed. Okay. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in momentum. So I thought, well, I'm going to get on the surfboard and, well, the surf's up, and yeah. so I started. I knew I couldn't do it all. Yeah. So um, I uh, I rang all my clients and said, um, after the futurities, I'm done. Yeah. And um, and they all said, oh, he's tired. He'll be back. And then a couple of years later, they went, maybe he isn't coming back. <laughs> you know. That but yeah. I did. I, I wanted to focus on on uh, clinics and wanted to focus on uh, property and development and some of my cattle. Yeah. So you said just before. Uh, you, you know, you're a man of like challenges. What are you looking at now? What sort of your goal ambitions now? Oh, I, I, I think I'm going to still keep uh, uh, teaching uh, while I some while I people are interested enough to listen. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I, I've got uh, some really nice country, and I've got uh, I've de- start developing a really nice herd of cattle. Yeah. Uh, there's still some development work to do on those properties, and there's uh, and there's still a, a, a there's quite a few holes in my cattle still that yeah. I'd like to improve. Yeah. So, um, and fortunately for me, uh, I'll, I'll be doing up to 50 clinics a year, uh, which, and then I'm very busy at home in the meantime. So it doesn't seem to me like I need to take holidays because uh, I'm kind of excited about what I'm doing at home. Yeah. And then uh, that freshens me to go on the road. Yeah. And, uh, and the two kind of uh, support each other in that way. Yeah. Well, Ian, it's been an absolute honour to sit down with the man of your stature and we just really appreciate everything you've done for our industry and thank thank you very much for doing this with us. Okay, thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Well, guys, we sure hope you enjoyed that interview with Ian Francis. Again, thank you, Ian, for doing that with with us. Massive shout-out to you. That was um, 
just a great weekend. We did a big three-day clinic out at Mudgee and Ian was there, helped everyone and did an incredible job as he always has done and uh, had a huge weekend, three days as I said and managed to do a podcast with me on the Sunday afternoon and then drove home that afternoon all the way back up to Queensland. So it's amazing. He's still got so much energy and it's a credit to him. So thank you very, very much for sitting down to do that with us. I felt very privileged to sit down with Ian and do that podcast. I just never thought I'd ever be in a position to get to do that and sit down with such a living legend of this industry. And yeah, I was just really excited to sit down and do that. And uh, yeah, I guess what I really took away from Ian was I really appreciated and, and enjoyed that Ian had to work out a lot of his horsemanship by just thinking about it himself. I mean, obviously he had a, you know his mentors along the way and, and bits of advice that really helped him, but I just really thought that that was a really cool thing that, you know, we're so used to these days, you know, looking at the next video or asking the trainer down the road how to do this, how to do that, you know, which is really great and I'm glad that we have that opportunity and it's all accessible like that, but I just could really appreciate that he had to figure out some things on him by himself. That's a hard thing to do these days. But I feel like that's something we often miss out on. And, you know, just some plain, simple thought can really go a long way. Another thing I thought that was really interesting about doing the interview with Ian was finding out that he wasn't a real confident, outgoing person. You know, he struggled to go up to people and ask for advice and, and that sort of thing. And it's amazing that he still showed that level of competitiveness and had that nature to still go out there and show to his absolute potential. So I just thought that was a really cool aspect about him well guys we sure hope you've enjoyed this interview and this week's episode of the 90 or nothing podcast show be sure to duck over onto our facebook page and instagram share like comment on this post and look out for our new caps that we've just released if you guys want to be up in the style and looking good we'll make sure you order a cap of us for the cheap price of 25 dollars. all right guys till next week we'll catch you then my pay and a ramble man it seems One shot, two shot, baby, let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four, five, honey, I'm the rebel One step, two step, baby, put your foot flat to the floor Three step, four, run, baby, I'm an outlaw I don't have time for politics, I'm not a first-class citizen I know every backtrack out of here, I'll outrun you if I can. Feel the rush, the push and shove, I'm like a flame almost a fire. And if you're trying to work my buttons, you've got a madman's dark desire. One shot, two shot, baby, let's ride this rodeo. Three shot, four, five, honey, I'm a rebel. One step, two step, baby, put your foot flat to the floor. Shot ball.